0: All right. If you go to page 8, you'll see our uh, passage uh, for our consideration this evening. Uh, We are in Acts. We started last week. Uh, We started because uh, it really tells us what is the kingdom of God all about? What would it look like for the kingdom of God to come to this neighborhood? Uh, I think Acts will help us answer that question. And last week, uh, we saw that Uh, Just because Jesus departed, just because he ascended to heaven, does not mean that the kingdom too departed. It just means that the kingdom now looks different. The the kingdom now is going to come through the witness of God's people by the power of God's Spirit. The kingdom of God is going to come through the witness of God's people by the power of his Spirit. Uh, That's how Jesus' kingdom is going to come now. And that's what we're going to see in Acts happen again and again and again. this book of Acts is written by Luke. Uh, Luke also wrote the gospel. So in a lot of ways, uh, Acts is kind of like Second Luke. And in it, uh, we see the account of the early church. If you only want to know uh, what the early church was like by looking at uh, the epistles, you just have a snippet here and a snippet there. And so the glory of Acts is that it really gives us uh, early church history. Uh, what, was it, what was the church like in those early days? Um, and uh, we saw last week, Uh, That the kingdom was going to come when the witness of God's people was going to happen in Jerusalem, then Judea then Samaria and the other other most parts of the earth. Uh, But Jesus says, I need you to stay here in Jerusalem. I need you to wait for the Holy Spirit. Uh, And we'll see what that waiting looks like uh, here in just a moment. So let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, um, many of us, uh, we have been waiting on you. Uh, We've been waiting on uh, you to make us whole. Uh, Lord, there's uh, some kind of suffering, emotional, mental, uh, physical that's been happening in our lives. And we've been waiting for you to bring redemption. And Lord, we've been waiting for you to bring redemption to a relationship. Um, We've been waiting for you to bring redemption to our neighborhood. We've been waiting for you to bring redemption to our world. Uh, And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it looks like to wait uh, through this passage. And Lord, help me uh, your... Uh, your mouthpiece tonight. Lord, help me to say nothing that is uh, not helpful. Uh, Lord, I I want to speak only the words that you give me. So Lord, would you help me be much more uh, than relevant, clear, even biblical. Uh, Lord, would you give me unction. Would you give me uh, your spirit even now? In Christ's name, amen. Um, You know what preachers are really good at? They're really good at culture bashing. They're great at it. I, maybe you've seen them before. Uh, sometimes it's appropriate, but most of the time it's really annoying. Uh, so tonight I'm going to be really annoying. Uh, one uh, one of the things that drives me nuts about our culture is how bad we are at waiting. I mean, horrible. I mean, d- downright terrible. It's not like this section of the population is good and this part of the population is good. We're all terrible at it. Um, and you know we're terrible at it because anytime that we have to wait even for just an instance uh, we take out our cell phone even during a commercial even during a lull in a conversation during a meeting sitting at a stoplight we pull it out because we stink at waiting Uh, maybe we become so bad at waiting uh, that we think that anything longer than two-day shipping is an eternity Uh, or we get all kinds of angry when we unexpectedly have to wait in traffic I mean, it really has reached an epidemic proportion. We are terrible at waiting, myself included. Uh, Last month, I'm on my way to Danville to do a wedding. It seems like I do them every other weekend these days. Um, But I'm on my way to a wedding in Danville. I'm on Nicholasville Road, past Nicholasville. Uh, I wasn't running late at all, but I was in a hurry. Uh, And usually if you're running late, you're in a hurry, but I'm so bad at waiting that I don't know how to not be in a hurry. And so the result was I was going 75 and a 55. I got caught. I'm out $163. So being bad at waiting will cost you. Uh, But waiting, it's a learned behavior, isn't it? Even if we lived in a society that was not so fast paced, we would still be bad at waiting. Because being bad at waiting at its heart, at its core, is a heart issue. The human heart, it longs to be in control. It longs to set its destination, to plan its course, and to have no interruptions. But the problem is that we don't have as much control over our lives as we think we do. A few weeks ago, uh, we had a, a terrible storm came through central Kentucky. Uh, it, it, I mean, we knew it was going to rain, but we didn't know that the winds were going to hit this kind of uh, hit these levels. Uh, so lots of trees went down, therefore a lot of electric went out. Maybe some of you were without... Electric even, and you would probably be wondering, like, man, even with technological advances, couldn't we have seen this thing coming? But it wasn't in the forecast. But then the power went out. Many of us had to wait till it got turned back on. So we can't nail the forecast. We can't get our electric turned on because we're not in control. The result: we have to wait. To wait. The scriptures are filled with commands to wait. We read one of them in Psalm 62 earlier, but listen to these. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you commands about waiting for the Lord. Then you get to the disciples and you would think, all right, the 12 guys who spent the most time with Jesus, they should be pretty good at waiting. After all, they've been with Jesus. Hopefully Jesus would have rubbed off on them, but that's not the case. They get to the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, I need you to stay here, wait here and pray because I'm going to go just a touch farther and I'm going to pray. And what do they do? They don't wait. They fall asleep. Why? Because waiting is hard. Then you have, um, then you have um, the Jesus' prediction. He predicted very clearly that he was going to die and that he was going to raise again. It shouldn't have been a surprise to them. You would expect the disciples to remember this prediction when, Jesus go, when he goes ahead and he dies. You expect them to say, all right, he said he was going to die, but he also said he was going to raise again. So we're going to wait at the tomb. But you don't find the disciples there because they don't wait. Instead, they go fishing. Why? Why? Because waiting is hard. So when we hear Jesus in Acts chapter 1, in those first 11 verses, He says, hey, I need you to wait here for the Holy Spirit. You're thinking, oh my gosh, you just told the disciples to wait again. They've got a really terrible track record. You really, you really do think that they're either going to shrink back at the call to witness and then go crawl in a hole somewhere and avoid the responsibility, or instead of waiting, they're going to go with unbridled heroism to go save the world in their own strength. Yet, what we find with them is something very different. We find that they actually have changed. We find that there are attitudes in them that are worth our reflection on what it means to wait. So let's look at Acts, at these 15 verses. I'll read it. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's where. That's where they were when uh, Jesus ascended. Okay, they were at Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's 11 of them. There's one missing. You know who it is. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Verse 15. In those days Peter stood among the brothers. The company of persons was in all 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Gory around here. Verse 19. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Echodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. He had three names, apparently. And Matthias verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And a lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Uh, Doesn't this look like a really unimportant passage of Scripture? I mean, sure, last week you had the first 11 verses. Uh, You've got a lot of punch in those first 11 verses. Uh, Verse 8 is is, is a verse that if you've gone through the topical memory system, you've probably memorized it. About being a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other parts of the world. And then you've got chapter 2, which we'll get to next week. And it's action-packed as the Holy Spirit comes upon the early disciples of Jesus. But in between the, the, the opening of the book and chapter 2, you've got these kind of odd 15 verses. So why does Luke, well, why does he include these in his recollection of early church history? Well, as I noted earlier, I think it's because he wants us to see how the disciples have already begun a transformation. transformation. They're not the same kind of people as they used to be when they couldn't wait for God. Now they can wait for the Holy Spirit. And the two attitudes that we see in them, uh, verses 12 to 15, we see a prayerful dependence. How do you wait well? You pray with a prayerful dependence. And how do you wait well? You have an attitude, verses 16 to 26, uh, of, of trust amidst uncertainty. So let's look at prayer, this prayerful dependence, verse 12 to 15. Luke packs in a lot of details right here. Um, he gives us a really good feel for what this scene Is Where does this happen? Well, it says that at Mount Olivet, that's where uh, where the disciples were when Jesus ascended into heaven. And it says that he went a Sabbath day journey from there to the upper room. So, from there to the upper room was a Sabbath day journey. Sabbath day's journey, you couldn't walk more than equivalent of two-thirds of a mile. So, they only had to walk about 20 minutes from Mount Olivet to this upper room. And many people think that this upper room here mentioned in Acts chapter 1 is the same upper room of where Jesus served them the Last Supper. So, they didn't waste any time. They could have sat there and they could have recounted the events of the Ascension. They could have, what did Jesus mean when He said this? And they could have had this debate. They could have uh, done what they were used to doing, but that's not what they did. They went somewhere to pray. And that place was the upper room. And look who's there. Verse 15, you see 120 people. So somebody in the early church had them a big house. Because somebody in big church had a house that was going to fit, fit 120 people. And we see who's there. 11 of those 120 people are the, are the disciples, the early apostles. Some of the other people there, you see uh, that the, you have the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Well, it would make sense if, if, if Luke says, hey, you've got 11 apostles, you've got Jesus' mom, and you've got some of his siblings. They were part of the 120. But look at the other group of people that he added. Look who he added. Who was it? It was the women. Why would he say the women? Well, it's because in Luke's gospel and what we find throughout the scriptures is that women held a place... That you couldn't find anywhere else in the first century. See other places in the first century, other religious movements, other economic movements, other political movements. You wouldn't have found women in this kind of role. But this has always been the case with Jesus. Some of the commentators I read this week think that these women are Susanna, Joanna, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, These were the people that we heard uh, that you would read about in Luke chapter eight, verse two. Luke chapter eight, verse two. What you see there is that there are people who are underwriting Jesus' ministry. And when they're underwriting Jesus' ministry, it means that they're giving them a ton of money so that they can do this work, so they can do this itinerant ministry work. So, of course, the people who are making the big checks, they're there, 120 people. Because what Jesus was trying to do all along was to create a community that was erected by one thing, himself. So that all kinds of people could be a part of it, even women. Alright, so that's the who. you got these 120 somewhat diverse group of people. You've got them in this upper room. But what are they doing? You see in verse 14, they were praying, but they weren't just praying. They were of one accord devoted to praying. In other words, they weren't just sharing a common activity, prayer, but they shared a common purpose. They were of one accord at a heart level. And this wasn't just a, a, a pray short prayer before a meal, but they were committed to doing it hour after hour. They were in unity in this kind of committed prayer. And you'd expect that it would be like Jesus' family members. They're the ones. They're the only ones allowed to pray. It would just be the men who are allowed to pray. Not the case. It would just be the apostles who are allowed to pray. Not the case. All of them were praying. There was this unity among them because they had this common purpose. The purpose was to wait for the Holy Spirit. So do you get the picture? 20 minute walk, familiar room, 120 of them there, family, non-family, disciples, non-disciples, women and men united in prayer. Why? That's the most, in question, well, that's the most important question. Why are they there praying? What are they doing? Why is prayer so important in this instance? It's because prayer is what the human heart does when it rests in the promises of Jesus. See, a heart that doesn't rest in the promise of Jesus, in this case, would do one of two things. If it wasn't resting in the promise of Jesus, it would, get, it would tend towards heroism. And heroism doesn't mean heroine, it means doing, uh, being a hero. They were trying to say, hey, Jesus just told us to go be a witness to the uttermost parts of the world. I'm going to go do it. Even though I'm not going to do it with the Spirit, I'm still going to go obey Jesus. But that's not what they did. A heart that doesn't rest in Jesus could fall off the other side. A heart that doesn't rest in Jesus could be fatalistic. You could be a heroine or you could be a fatalist. And the fatalist says, I'm not praying because it's not going to do any difference anyways. So if I were the disciples, I would have fallen off on this side of the fence. I would, have, I would have said, I'm ready to charge hell with a water pistol and go tell these people about Jesus. But the problem with being heroic in ministry is that it misplaces where the power from ministry actually comes from. The power for ministry actually comes from the Holy Spirit. And the disciples got it. They finally got it. But on the other side of the coin, they, they could say, God's going to do what he's going to do. I might as well just sit here and eat sun chips. That's what they could have done. They could have said, who wants to go fishing? Who wants to go fishing? That's what we're used to. They could have said, I want to go fishing. The Holy Spirit can get us out there on the boat, regardless where we're at. So let's just split up, do our thing, and wait that way. But that's not what they do. That's not waiting on the Lord. That would have been fatalism. So of course they're praying. Because prayer is the perfect balance of action and inaction. In prayer, you actually are doing something, but it's also in prayer that you realize that God is the only one who has the power to affect any real change. Think about the two sides of Acts 1-8. He says, go be my witnesses. And he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. Be my witnesses. Action. Wait for the Holy Spirit. In action. So we fall off the fence on one side or the other when we put too much weight on one at the expense of the other. So which side of the fence do you fall off on? Do you tend to hear the clarion calls of Christian obedience and say, God said go be a witness, therefore I'm going to go do it. If you say that, you may be placing too much confidence in yourself to bring about something that only God can. But maybe you hear these words, go be a witness to the ends of the earth, and say, wait. I'm just going to wait here for the Spirit to pounce on me like the boogeyman and to push me into public witness for Jesus. Well, that's an unhealthy response too, but because it doesn't believe that God actually hears us and answers our prayers. So for us as a church, I want us to wait in prayer, not be fatalistic, not be heroic and here's what that I think that looks like. I think that means that we know real people who have real names and real faces, and we pray for them. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in them, and that they would become disciples of Jesus too. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take prayer not just for them, but for you. Because you're going to need to pray for yourself that your words and your life reflect the story of the gospel. Because this is what people who wait for the Lord do. They pray. What else do they do? We see that they trust God in the midst of uncertainty. Verses 15 to 26. This is, it's not really hard to figure out if you, just, if you were to read that narrative again to kind of put the pieces together and see the scene. And when you see the scene, here's what you have. You have Peter. He stands up. He gives this really gruesome account of Judas' death. Really gruesome. And then he goes uh, and says that someone's going to need to replace Judas. And that person who's going to replace Ju- Judas had two requirements that had to be met. One was they would had to be present with Jesus through all his ministry, and they had to be a, a, a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrection. And then once they find those two people who meet those requirements, they have names, Joseph and Matthias. Once they have them, they pray for them, they cast lots, and the lots falls on Matthias. Does it seem that complicated? But then you start asking the question some text. Why? Why replace Judas? Why not just go with 11? Does it really make that much difference? I had a really hard time figuring this out until I put myself in the shoes of those 120 people. Picture these 120 people. This isn't a one-to-one correlation, but it's close enough. Imagine uh, that you're in a church of 120 people. And in that church of 120 people, your pastor dies. Not only does your pastor dies, but he's murdered by one of the elders. I don't think that's going to happen here. He's murdered by one of his elders, and then that elder turns around and kills himself. See, Jesus is the pastor in this scenario, and the rogue elder here is Judas. So think about being one of those 120 people. This would be a very hurting group of people. They would be asking the question, what kind of good could come from Judas's betrayal? And if you were one of those 11 apostles, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They'd be thinking, gosh, I really thought Judas was one of us. He really seemed to be on board. If he betrayed Jesus, what's preventing me from betraying Jesus and going off the deep end too? They needed some assurance, didn't they? Or if you were one of the non-apostles, you were part of the 120, you could easily had your eye on those other 11 and said, hey, these guys, you really think these guys are going to be the ones who are going to witness to the resurrected Jesus to the ends of the earth, and I'm supposed to trust them for my spiritual well-being? When just a couple of weeks ago, one of them fell off the deep end? Really? So now put yourself in their shoes. What do they need They need to trust God in the midst of adversity. They're hurting badly. They're sitting and waiting in this bathtub of suffering. And maybe you're there too. And maybe as you're sitting and waiting in the bathtub of your suffering, your vain imaginations have gotten the best of you. It's easy when you're sitting there to come up with scenarios where your leaders are going to fail you. It's easy to sit in that bathtub and really believe that God doesn't care about you anymore. Think about it for them. These 120 people, they were used to Jesus being with them. Now he's not with them anymore. So do you see how hard it is to suffer and wait at the same time? Because when you're sitting and you're suffering and you're being forced to wait, your heart's grasping for straw, just something stable. So it begins to imagine possibilities that just aren't true. And so Peter senses this in these 120 people. And he stands up. He gives a sermon in verses 16 to 22. And in his sermon, Peter lays out a strategy for them to deal with their pain. He calls them to trust God because God worked the sin of Judas for his glory. See, this whole thing about Judas, it didn't catch God off guard. It was on his radar. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And then he lists there in verse 20, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, where we see that Judas fulfills, or or the, the misdeeds of Judas fulfill scripture. I know this is really tricky theological territory. Because on one hand, we can't say that God authored the evil of Judas. But at the same time, we can't say that God didn't know about it either. But what we can say is that God has a way of leveraging the evil of man for his glory and our good. Now, this kind of God, he's got some edges, doesn't he? This kind of God will make you uncomfortable. But you can trust him. Think about it. Somehow God took the unjust murder of his very son, along with the betrayal of one of his son's closest friends and a leader in the early church. And then he turned that into the salvation of the world. So if God can take that kind of injustice, the greatest injustice of all time and work it for his glory, don't you think that you can trust him while you wait for him in your suffering? So where are you waiting on the Lord? Are you waiting on the Lord in your singleness? Are you waiting on the Lord for a spouse? Maybe you thought you'd be married by now, but you don't even have a lead. So what should you do? Pray and trust. Trust. If you're in that situation, pray that you don't take matters into your own hands and you begin to lower God's standards to make it easier for you. Pray that you that God would show you what standards that you have that he doesn't have. And then trust him. Trusting that this season of waiting, this season of singleness is not pointless. It's not only misery. But there are unique opportunities. There's unique gifts that singleness provides that are to be enjoyed. Maybe you're waiting for employment. Maybe you're waiting for somebody to pay your rent check because you don't have any way of paying it. You're looking for a job. You're crafting a resume. You're networking. You're searching relentlessly on monster.com and you can't find a job. What should you do? Pray. And ask others to pray, too. Are you waiting on? Maybe you've got some kind of suffering, this kind of long standing suffering, this kind of uh, a thorn in your side kind of suffering that you've been pleading for the Lord to remove, but He doesn't. Maybe it's a physical illness, an autoimmune disease. Maybe it's a mental illness. Maybe you're battling an addiction. I, I don't know. But whatever it is, it just doesn't seem to go away. So why does God make it stay around? I'm not sure. I I don't know. I I can't even pretend to know. But one thing that we can learn from the Scriptures is that God is not afraid of the long game. His table, His timetable is usually much longer than ours. Are you waiting? Waiting on a broken relationship to be resolved? Maybe you've recently had a breakup, not much closure. Maybe you had a friendship that turned sour. Maybe you are in the midst of divorce, I don't know. And these things are really hard to wait on Jesus to do something about because it is just so awkward and it is so exhausting. But if God can make the cross glorify Him, He can make this broken relationship glorify Him too. So, in the end I don't know why God makes us wait. I don't know why He makes us suffer. But I can not take one explanation off the table tonight you can't say that God makes you wait and He makes you suffer because He's cruel. You can't say it. Because Jesus demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, He died for us. Oh, how great is the love that's been lavished on us that we should be called children of God. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He, along with Him, graciously give us all things? In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So can you hear Jesus tell you that He loves you? Because the more convinced you are that He really does love you, the more content you can be in your waiting. You'll begin to pray instead of being fatalistic or heroic in your witness. You'll begin to trust God in your suffering waiting for him to bring redemption to your pain. You can wait because Jesus loves you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do wait for you to come. We wait for you to come with power. Would you bring redemption to us? thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen.